Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. You are listening to Mist Apex podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Miss Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. How's it going there, Matt? Happy Consume Chocolate Day. Oh, I do love me an Easter egg. Uh, we left my son's big Easter egg on the windowsill of the living room. And when he went to open it, it was completely melted and was just in the bottom of the box as a lump of chocolate. Well, it'll still taste good anyway. Happy Easter to everybody out there. It's a very different weekend to last weekend. Last weekend, we were fully pumped and hyped up after the race. My adrenaline wasn't even close to coming down. All a bit calmer this week. But I'll tell you what, Matt, the level of... Uh, vitriol, the level of hyperbole, the level of passion on social media after the race was incredible. And I think, I think I'm going to apologise for how glib I was from a kind of Hamilton supporting point of view. So from my point of view, I was cheering the race on. I wouldn't have minded who'd have won. Honestly, it was such a good race. But I was a little bit, oh yeah, I was cheering and my Dutch neighbour heard me, etc., What I didn't really realise was the amount of hurt on social media from how emotionally invested Verstappen fans were, people who were fed up of Hamilton domination were, because they were promised a dethroning on Saturday night and they didn't get it on Sunday. And and I think when we're this passionate and emotional about the sport, maybe I could do with, I could dial it down a notch. I, I always try and deny the you're a hamfosi lunatic claims, but maybe I just went one notch over, for which I will apologize. Yeah, well, the, the interesting thing about this situation, and I totally understand where you're coming from, is that everybody had good arguments for the points they wanted to make, but the points they were making uh, didn't really overlap a lot in a Venn diagram point kind of way. So yeah. the Hamilton people were like, it was it, it was a stunning drive from Hamilton that if anyone else had been in that car, including Max, I think, I don't think they would have won, if I'm being honest. But that takes nothing away from the fact that Red Bull had the faster car 
Max had an incredible drive, but there were some issues they had that really kept them, I think, from expressing the full potential of that car. And we will talk about them on the show a little bit later, I believe. True. And, and equally, I believe that there's not many drivers that would have taken the fight to Mercedes and made it that close, apart from Max Verstappen. You know, there's, there's maybe, maybe if we put half the rest of the grid in there, it would have been a much easier Hamilton victory. So I, I hope I didn't come across as being a Max hater. I'm not. I think he's funny. I think he's a fantastic talent. And if we get Verstappen versus Hamilton this year, I'll be absolutely delighted. And we're going to bring some panel on to talk to you. But first, as always, I have to remind you that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Our first panellist is PR guru and sensation, Chris Stevens. How's it going, Chris? Hey, Spanners. I know you've been feeling a little unwell um, this week, and it seems to have spread through Zoom and caught on to me as well. Did I give you Zoom flu? Yay. Give me Zoom flu. Uh, but apart from that, it's good to have you on. Obviously, we're not going to have you on for the majority of race reviews because you're you're busy representing drivers at the weekend. Uh, but from your point of view, I mean, that was a crazy weekend. I know that you claim, you've always claimed to be a neutral up at the top and to not support any driver, uh, except for Latifi. You are, of course, you are our, our only Latifi fan on the panel. Yeah, um, I, I just love Nicky. Um, I think he's a really great guy. Um, having you know worked with him a, l- a little bit um, during his junior Formula days, um, you know he he is the the, the son of a billionaire. Um, but you would not guess it um, from uh, interacting um, with him. He's very humble. Um, I think he's very aware of the fact that he's lucky to uh, to to do what he does and to be in Formula One, and uh, that uh, he's just a, a really really nice guy um, overall. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, get on as many shows uh, before we uh, get to the real crazy end of the season. Basically, after this weekend, it's it's nonstop for a few months. Yeah, I, I tell you what, with Latifi, you get no sense of entitlement at all mm. in his radio messages. He just seems to be cracking on with it and and enjoying his trade. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it's exactly how I'd uh, describe him. Just a very amicable um, guy, which uh, a lot of people in, in Formula One uh, c- lack sometimes i think and i'm also joined by dutch media expert and journalist jules sagers hello jules good evening guys i i didn't just go out and find a token dutch person just because of the criticism from last week i uh it didn't sound like it not at all you're here on merit i promise but i did mess up and i think i found the only dutch lewis hamilton fan well, Lewis Hamilton fan is maybe a bit too much, but I uh, I am um, uh, an admirer of his uh, of his achievements, of his driving, and um, uh, I think uh, drivers that that come into the sport and immediately immediately set set things on fire. Um, I'm a fan of those, and Hamilton was one, and uh, Jack Villeneuve was one. Uh, which I who I'm who I supported back in those days. Well, and also you could definitely argue that Max Verstappen is one. He came in so young and, and and showed his nose very early, even in the Toro Rosso. You know, big memories of him not being afraid to chuck it down the inside of that final hairpin in China. Um, so he he's had that same sensational impact on F1. Yeah, 
That's true. That's absolutely true. And um, over here in uh, in the Netherlands, there's no escaping uh, uh, that point of view. We'll talk a little bit more about the Dutch reaction to the race in, in the Dutch media, because we obviously, we, we're a bit Brit-centric here and we see the British media. But ladies and gentlemen, that is your panel, Matt Trumpets, Jules Sagers and Chris Stevens. Right then, Matt, I've got, I've got a plan. I, you've prepared some lovely notes about what we learned from the last race. And I think what it would be good to do is extrapolate what we know from last weekend and just see how that sets us up for the season going forward uh, a little bit. Now, last week, we spent quite a lot of time concentrating on the top two, the top two teams. I think that is understandable. So why don't we start with McLaren, who, in a way, it was a surprise third place it was a surprise strong performance overshadowed massively by the battle up front but this could be a thing all right so just to make it clear for the audience when you when you compliment me on my notes right what you really mean is i'm going to ignore almost all of them and talk about what i want to that i decided at the last second that's a joke by no, the way. No, uh-uh. I, I know i know you have used my notes <laughs> because you you know the topics you want to talk about and that's why yes you do your job and i do my job to carry on, yeah, McLaren, of all of the team, McLaren had a lot of question marks about sustaining their third position in the championship. They got there through ruthless consistency last season. They got there by having an incredibly evenly matched pair of drivers. And so with the new engine, with the inability to develop the car in the same way as all of their rivals, it was an open question whether or not they could sustain that performance. And they answered it. Yes, absolutely. We can. The new Mercedes power unit worked out brilliantly for them. Their drivers were so much more closely matched in qualifying than any other pair on the grid. It was insane. I'm talking about a 0.05% difference in qualifying. And had Gasly not given Ricardo a diffuser upgrade in the opening lap, they would have scored even more points. But as is, you look at where Norris finished, you look at the margin of victory for his P4, there was nobody in his bubble, and really only Ferrari in qualifying looked like they might be able to push him. Their pace was so convincing, wasn't it? And I think that's what struck people um, the most. You know, there was some debate, oh, maybe we, we slipped down a position in the championship. No, they were solidly the third fastest car when uh, Norris was done having his amazing side-by-side action with Ricardo in the opening lap uh, which lasted for a, a much longer than I um, certainly would have expected to see between teammates of the first Grand Prix of the season um, but once he was through he just bolted and sure Ricardo got that damage but even then was convincingly fast I, I think it was on the Sky interviews where they were saying oh uh, did you not have any kind of team orders to not fight Lando too hard and he said yes we did but once we got into the race I just forgot about it and just started racing and it was kind of almost like a yep sorry about that my got to my head Matt I always translate too hard as actually damage and or both of us have crashed out anything short of that is probably okay so tell us about this damage then because we saw Gasly kind of ping off to the left and we went oh well Gasly's hit someone but we never really heard about that on the race commentary so what's he done he's gone and damaged the the floor of of ricardo so that puts his performance into some context yeah it removed a pretty significant chunk of downforce from the car which then made it harder to keep the tires 
alive for as long and and the car just doesn't handle as well once that happens and we've seen it a lot it's one of the worst areas for damage because it's the most important you generate the most downforce for the least amount of drag from that area of the car so it's critical to the overall performance and balance of yeah, of the driving and even though the uh, the rear floor is where the biggest downforce cut for this year has, has happened that's obviously the big regulation change that everyone's talking about it's still um, very a very important part of the car and so getting a hit there is really going to hinder you and I, I, I just think it was really clumsy from from Gasly to be honest um, we don't often see him make mistakes like this he had qualified fantastically had a great opportunity to score a top five finish in the first race of the season he blew it on the second racing lap yeah and this is what we're talking about and amazingly it's looking like it's going to be Ferrari or AlphaTauri right now being the real challengers to McLaren and the one person that could have really taken it to them and looked to have the car to do it was Gasly. And it was just, well, I mean, I guess we could use the word unfortunate if we want to be polite about it, but you know, it, it was a bit of a surprising error from someone who won a race last season. Well, I want to give Gasly a bit of a hug. I, I've been hearing these comments. I think they've been reported widespread. I think I caught it in motorsport.com. I'm not sure uh, where Marco was basically going. Well, if, Verstappen was in that Toro Rosso, uh, beg your pardon, Alpha Tauri, he would have been three seconds a lap faster and he would have finished fourth. And that, you don't, that's not man management. Like, you, you do that if you want to force someone out. I don't think that's very, very encouraging. I mean, surely he's owed a little more from the Red Bull management in, in terms of just like even public respect, regardless of what is said in private. Yeah. I, I would say so. But by the same token, he's really raised expectations for himself this season. So he's he's going to be judged with a very different lens. And Marco, uh, you know, love him or lump him. He has his very distinct point of view. And that point of view is deliver or, you know, deliver or the door, basically. So if you're going to put yourself forward as I've won a race, I'm so good, I should be in a Red Bull. Mm. Well, then when you do something like that, you can expect that I will point out to you your errors. Well, I'm just, I don't think it is uncharacteristic, Chris. I'm just going to argue with you a little because I'm not, I'm not even saying like, oh, it's an awful mistake and he really messed up. I'm just, I'm just saying he's a very aggressive driver. That's completely in character. He he has a, a tendency to be quite aggressive. It's worked to his strength at some point. I mean, the one that I think of immediately was how he kind of refused to back out of passing Sergio Perez when he was squeezed to within centimeters of the wall heading towards Eau Rouge at oh, Spa, Spa, last Spa. Year, yeah, yeah, which was absolutely incredible. And that's one of those classic scenarios where when it pays off, you look like a hero. Um, if Perez had actually fed him into the wall, we'd have been looking at Perez and going, well, what are you doing? You didn't leave him a, a car's width. Um, but that I don't know that particular one. It just seemed like such um, such a clumsy thing to do so early yeah. in the race. Yet I still look, I'm going to go to Microsoft's comment in the live chat here. Hello, live chat room. Go and search for us on YouTube. Like and subscribe the video. And if you click the bell, you'll get a notification when we go live. And you can you can chat and be part of the show and shape what we talk about. Microsoft says I heard Gasly got into a fight with Newey. Sounds like it's more more than just Helmer. And I've heard that too. And it does feel like, Chris, it feels like there's something personal, like there's some history. Did Gasly, you know, date the wrong person's daughter at some point? 
he uh, wrote uh, a very emotive piece. Oh, I never read it. Um, it was I meant to. Very, very good. I'm sure you would have seen it doing the rounds on yes, um, saw, social yeah. media. Um, he was talking mainly about um, that particular weekend at, at Spa when we lost Antoine Hubert, who we, he was obviously very, very good friends uh, with. And um, obviously that was his first race back in the uh, the Toro Rosso um, or AlphaTauri at the at the time, having just been demoted from Red Bull. And so it, it was about how we managed to turn it uh, turn it around. But in that piece, he did um, talk about how he didn't feel like the team was behind him. You know, we we've discussed what were Daniel Ricciardo's motivations for leaving Red Bull was the fact that it was becoming Max's team. One of them, given Gasly's almost testimony to that as well, almost seems to to, to back up that case. So I I saw that article doing the rounds and I have to admit, I never clicked on it and read it because, you know, reading. I've not really read much since Netflix became good. Uh, But if you're going to openly talk like that, uh, is it surprising then if the management doesn't love you by the race weekend and starts criticising you? That's hand that feeds you. I mean, we were talking about when we were talking about the driver market last year. Um, I, for one, did not think Gasly would be doing another year at AlphaTauri. I thought he would go mm. and move on to something like Renault um, or uh, Alpine, as it now is. Uh, I, I genuinely don't think his future is with AlphaTauri. I don't think he is going to have another shot at the senior Red Bull team. And at that point, you've got to go and try and do something um, different. Sonoda has got so much uh, momentum behind him that I think they're already looking at where Sonoda's future is over Gasly's. So he's got to try and find another route, whether that's uh, within Formula One or within uh, another series. uh, That's what it's up to him. Well, the thing is, Jules, you don't criticise the coach, do you? You don't criticise the boss. That's how Megan Fox lost her role in the Transformers franchise. And it looks like Gasly's going the same way. But we do get good drivers out of that programme. Yes, it's brutal, but Verstappen got through that programme. Vettel got through that programme. Yeah, but here's the here's the thing: is is uh, Verstappen really a, a Red Bull uh, a product? It, hardly so, and um, I'm not sure about about uh, Sebastian Vettel. I think he's from an era where Red Bull hardly had this this junior program going. He was Red Bull sponsored, but I don't think it it it, it it's a question anymore whether Gasly is going to get the Red Bull seat or not. I think if you uh, heard Christian Horner last season. If you hear Helmut Marco now, if you've seen Drive to Survive, you'd say um, there's no lo- love lost between those guys anymore. Uh, Gasly is probably still there because AlphaTauri need a proper driver in that car. Gasly takes it because he's not. Uh, there's not a seat available at Alpine right now because they're stuck with Ocon, probably due to a deal with Mercedes. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't think Gasly wants to be there anymore. They don't really want him there anymore. So yeah, uh, I, I, I think uh, like um, like Chris said, this um, uh, this is uh, a marriage with no uh, with no love in oh, it anymore. Chris, it's like when you're you've got cheap rent that you can't afford on your own, and the, the lease has got another year to run, so you can't break up yet. Yeah, it, it's so funny, Jules, that you talk about um, Verstappen not really being a product of the Red Bull system because, of course, he very nearly joined Mercedes' uh, young driver 
program and i believe it was yoss who told him to go with with red bull who of course up until that point had very much been kind of pushing his career and don't forget verstappen only did one year of actual car racing before arriving in formula one and that was a season in formula three straight from karting yeah 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 that, that that's true I'll, I'll i'll not uh elaborate on it too much but uh Yoss has sponsored his his uh, his, uh, his career uh, uh, up until he got signed by Red Bull he did even did a winter program before his uh, formula 3 season uh, in the oh. ferrari uh, this ferrari uh, class in in the united states and um mercedes thought they had a good deal but then uh, the decision was red bull because they they could offer him a a, a race seat immediately yeah. And that then it was a done deal, but um, uh, yeah, that's 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 it's not a, a Red Bull program product at Fair all uh, in in that perspective. Fair enough. We're going to roll back around to Verstappen in a bit, Matt. Uh, we did get derailed by Gasly chat, and we started that on McLaren chat. That's fine. I, I really um, I enjoyed that digging into the the Red Bull program uh, a little bit, but we hadn't quite finished up with McLaren, had we? Certainly, from my point of view, here's my takeaway with McLaren. For as optimistic as we are, McLaren are actually a sign that the top two are very far ahead because we are celebrating the third team who were 45 seconds off the lead. That's still kind of far behind, Jules. It, it, it actually reminded me of that, that season, I think it's two seasons ago when you had Ferrari and uh, Mercedes battling, then you had a whole lot of nothing. Red Bull, a whole nother laughing, and then the rest of the teams. And uh, I, I'm not a fan of 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 uh, uh, doing season uh, predictions based on the first race, especially in a climate like Bahrain's. But um, if this is uh, uh, something uh, to to go on, um, uh, it could well be that uh, uh, McLaren is that that in that position. Well, the good news for you, Jules, is that Bahrain is a particularly power sensitive track. And we know that the Honda and Mercedes power units are fairly square on power. And in fact, it may surprise some people to know that Red Bull, at least, had to turn their power down a bit because they had some cooling issues that were software, not hardware related. And as far as McLaren being in a bubble by themselves, although this race looked like it, I think going forward, you're going to see, again, I, just from the words of Alpha Tauri, the, the technical director, Jody Eddington, saying, we have no, we have, they have developments coming the next three races. It's incremental. There's no headline grabbers, but by Spain, we should have a nice step forward. That is terrifying language from a Formula One technical director. Whenever they say they've fixed their problem and it's revolutionary, you do not want to bet on them. But when they say we're, it's going to be really boring, you won't see much, but we expect incremental steps. That's when you got to watch out because they are running. They have the same philosophy. I remember Summers talking about this. Just a neutral car that's easy for the drivers to handle and being very careful and precise with the updates, making sure they do what they're supposed to do. And I think we could see a really titanic battle between AlphaTauri and McLaren this season, and it's going to be delightful with Sonoda in the mix. Absolutely. As long as they don't try and qualify him on medium tires again. I think we need to talk Honda very, very soon. I just want to answer Notabia in the chat room who says, Bottas was also 40 seconds off. I think it was like 35 seconds. However, just a bit of housekeeping, Valtteri Bottas pitted late to claim the fastest lap, which he did. He put on 
brand new tyres and went and got the fastest lap. Chris. Yeah, and Andy lost um, 10 seconds with that slow stop as well. Yeah. So um, it's funny, these first two races, we couldn't have much more different circuits to open up the season. Bahrain, which is a very power-sensitive circuit with four quite long straights, three DRS zones and hot climate to then move to uh, Europe in, in early spring, probably quite cold, and a very, very high downforce circuit in the form of Imola. Certainly in the midfield, I would expect to see a bit of a shake-up in the comparative order compared to what we saw uh, in, in Bahrain. I think between Red Bull and, and Mercedes, Red Bull will probably edge a little bit further ahead, but the midfield should be really shaken up because it's just a completely different challenge to what we saw in Bahrain. Yeah, absolutely, Jules. Yeah, what Matt said about um, it could be a mclaren Tory battle, that also has a nice translation into um, uh, the Merck versus Red Bull uh, battle because uh, AlphaTauri being Red Bull's B team, uh, Mercedes has obviously power to make uh, McLaren maybe a bit uh, work a bit for them. And um, in that aspect, how, how much further will Honda be able to, to push their uh, power unit already having pulled it forward one year and pulling out technically um after this season and how much uh, uh um how do i say this how much development is mercedes willing to put in or how much is mercedes willing to give uh, uh mclaren uh, yeah. referring to uh, to uh, um the the engine modes uh, available to uh, to the lotus team of matthew carter uh, in one of the shows he did yes uh, this could be really interesting if it pans out like matt uh, like matt uh, just said that's a great segue into Honda, but again, just a little bit of housekeeping there with the relationship with Mercedes and McLaren. So, for example, there's no Mercedes logos on the McLaren car, and I believe that's just because, you know, as part of their deal, McLaren are paying. They're just paying. They're, they're much more of a, a traditional customer than, say, what we now describe as a customer team when we talk a little bit about power and B team. So I've no doubt that... Matthew Carter's Lotus, uh, maybe they were getting a good deal. So perhaps, you know, they've got a bit of influence there. With Williams, there's a driver there that is probably there because of Mercedes. In fact, there's there's no probably about it, is there? George Russell is a Mercedes driver. I'm not sure there's that same influence with McLaren, although you never know. You never know what's going on in the background. Uh, but with Honda, de- there's definitely, like, there's ultimate power. You could see Gasly... Yeah. Oh, you're going really well, but let's change your pit strategy completely or let's leave you out to make sure that you're at least slightly annoying for Lewis Hamilton, who's just pitted and, and needs to do a great outlap, for example. But I think we do need to talk about the Honda and how much has Honda's improvements accounted for, for Red Bull's competitiveness? If you, you know, both McLaren and Red Bull, they didn't have the horsepower to do the aero things they wanted to do. And it now looks like Red Bull, if you look at where they're fast, it looks like they can do the aero things they want to do, Matt. So does that mean that Honda's taken a big step? Uh, yeah, it has taken a massive step forward. And just to put it into perspective, an analysis, a post-race analysis at Bahrain showed Mercedes losing in turns 2, 5, 6, and 10. And this is the crucial thing to me, going into recovery mo- mode, going into recovery mode sooner at the end of straights than the Honda in the Red Bull. 
So we are seeing for the first time, Mercedes always has had its hand up. I'm the winner when it comes to ERS efficiency over right. a lap. I deploy more longer than anyone else. We are not seeing that this time around. And I know I have a lot of information about what's going on with that power unit, but I, I think I think Chris might want to get in here. I, I need to ask a question. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull I'm gonna pull sure, host sure. rank because when you talked about which corners are quick, uh, which ones they have an advantage in, out of turn two, sort of through the kink of turn three, is it is it traction zones then where the Honda's looking good? It, medium and high speed corners. I, oh, I think okay. low speed corners. Mercedes is right. still 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 kind of maybe a little quicker than them. But where where we're talking about de- uh, deploying power on exit, yes, and apex speed yeah. in those turns, specifically Red Bull was winning. Right, interesting, Chris. So I think it's very clear at this point that Honda has been able to take a huge step forward. They're even saying that they reckon they they've just edged out Mercedes, perhaps in terms of outright power. Of course, there are several more factors to a modern Formula One power unit that you have to take into consideration the earth deployment being um one of them how it performs with the various engine modes and of course the um, reliability but i think the the other thing that has really played into red bull's strength is uh, figuring out the issues they had with the the aerodynamics on the car last year of course the 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 rear diffuser stalling out because they were having all these correlation issues with the wind tunnel they've sorted those by the looks of it so that's a a, a huge factor as well and also that mercedes have had their wings clipped seemingly more than red bull if you look at the uh, comparative times uh, for bahrain between 2020 and 2021 the low rake teams that we've been discussing teams like aston martin and mercedes have lost the most amount of time whereas red bull seem to have lost almost about half of the deficit they just did a better job solving the problem, my friend, is yeah. what I would reply to you. I know Aston, before we talk about Honda, has has been a bit on on the nose saying they were so victimized because they're a low-rake team, to which I would want to reply, well, no one twisted your arm to copy Mercedes, now did they? Yeah. That was a choice you made. Um, but we can get into that. I want to talk about Honda. We've brought it up before. What they've done um specifically they've done a lot with the power unit and really what happened was the honda engineers looked at their plans for a 2022 engine and and they talked to their chief uh yasuaki asaki and said can we please move these plans forward to the 2021 season and he went to the big boss at honda and said you should probably do this it's our last season running this effort and they talked him into it. Magnificently, they talked him into it. So starting in October, with six months to go to Bahrain, they did the following things. They changed the camshaft layout. They made it more compact. They moved it lower. They changed the valve angles in, in, in the cylinders. They, they improved the efficiency of the combustion chamber. They lowered the center of gravity, moving everything downwards. They changed the bore pitch, the distance between the actual cylinder bores themselves. Wow. And the new engine they have is smaller than the original size zero they put in at McLaren. Now, if you ask me, can I think of another power unit manufacturer that has made a change so late? I would say yes. Mercedes going into year 2014 when they made the decision to split the compressor and the turbocharger and run it down the V of the engine. It's an astonishing engineering miracle 
they got this engine to show up and to be this reliable. And by everything they're demonstrating, the performance improvements have put them at or ahead of Mercedes. We don't really know because Mercedes has the additional handling issues. We don't really know quite where they are because they don't have, I don't think, the arrow to fully display that yet. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Scary if it's true that, that Red Bull was suffering a little bit with what Mercedes have done in the past, which is, oh, we've got this wonderful engine now and uh, it's overcooked a little and we have to turn it down. So maybe some bigger intakes next race, next time round, really unleashing. And that's scary if they are slightly ahead and they still have yet to unleash everything they can use. Yeah, but I think there's big room, big margin for improvement on both sides. Um, Mercedes, obviously, with their sort of handling issues, and uh, Red Bull in terms of their engine performance, whether they are having to cut some extra holes in the bodywork to improve the cooling for that engine, therefore costing them downforce. We'll see as the season goes on. Just a sort of general comment for sort of up and down the field. You know, I think a, a lot of the consensus is that they've recouped the actual aerodynamic downforce that they've lost with the the cuts in the floor the reason we're seeing slower lap times is mainly because of the tires, which are of a lower grip compared to the ones used in 2020. Good. And they're a little bit heavier, three kilos per set. Good. Uh, yeah. Well, I, groove tires. That's the way forward, Chris. Groove tires. Good. No one, no one's going to argue with me on that. And if you do want to, of course, you're always welcome to get in touch with us. Uh, we have feedback at mistapex.net. You can also email Matt, Matt at mistapex.net and also me spanners at mistapex.net chris do you want a fancy email too 
yeah, sure, go on. Why not? We'll sort one out. It why really should like I get? People... Why should I get all the abuse? I'll, I'll share I mean, it with you. Yeah, people, you can tweet me as well if you if you don't like me, or just um, leave a leave a nasty comment on the YouTube channel uh, <laughs> at as well. Chris That's on Racing. If you want to follow Chris yeah. on Twitter, I would like to uh, just circle back around a little bit to the the reaction to to last weekend and focusing in on you, obviously, Jules, as our, our token Dutch panelist. I, I'm interested in how we saw how the Dutch media and the Dutch fan base reacted to that because. We saw a lot of hurt from Max Verstappen fans. And honestly, it it was cruel. That was Max's race. You can look at my Twitter timeline. And I said, look, Max has got this. And I was like, and I even said, I don't mind who wins. This is amazing. I think Max has got this and it bodes really well for the future. It got, it got snatched away. And obviously we came under the accusations I was talking about. You're a ham podcast. It, it leads to an interesting discussion about supporting drivers and teams along national lines. I think in Britain, we've always been, you know, backing the British drivers and we've been lucky. We've had Mansell, Hill, Coulthard, and then, you know, into, um, why can't I remember any other British drivers? Uh, But then into like uh, Jensen Button as well and to Lewis Hamilton, Chris. We've always, as a country and as a media, we've gotten behind the British drivers. So we've kind of got that default. I don't want to be the one to kind of point the floor out there, but... Has anyone else noticed that kind of stopped when Lewis Hamilton started coming along? We've done it with every other British driver, and then Lewis Hamilton came along, and it was all, oh, I don't really I like it. I see him what all that you're much. driving at, but if you turn up to Silverstone and you're in the stands, you're, you're under absolutely yes. no illusion whatsoever as to who the crowd are supporting. They're very, very much behind Lewis Hamilton. So Brits get accused of just being very Brit focused. What I would say, Jules, is that we are Brit supporting. We support the British drivers by default. So everyone knows here that I'm a big Perez fan. Before the last season, believe it or not, I was a Grosjean supporter. But, you know, you keep that quiet, don't you? <laughs> but in in the Netherlands, you know, you guys have really got, as a nation, behind Max Verstappen. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It, to me, it's just a default sport thing. You support your hometown. You support your country at the World Cup. You cheer for your country at the Olympics. It just gives you, as a supporter, a bit of skin in the game. Yeah. Um... The thing is, um, he's he's the first Dutch Formula One driver actually able to uh, to really win something, to really achieve something in this sport, and it's uh, it's a television sport um, uh, mainly, of course, and so uh, you get big audiences quite easily. Um, I think I, I explained this uh, a bit before on the show that. Um, Dutch Dutch uh, sports followers uh, viewers uh, yeah. they are they like to party they like <laughs> to have a party and, and and when there's success when something becomes popular it attracts uh, a whole new breed a whole different type of fan or supporter uh, like the, the the orange stands in Austria or Belgium that's that's also people just wanting to have a good time and not really <laughs> bothering with yeah. formula 1 or the rules let alone turn four uh, track limit rules and whatever so all they know is max is uh, is a prodigy he's been put out there as a future world champion from from pretty much the beginning like he wins everything he's Jos's son but then better and he's won every uh, race uh, class that he's been in um, so it was just like, he's going to be a world champion. It's just a matter of when, and especially this season with, uh, the way winter testing went, there was this whole buildup and it was, you know, uh, 
some media or fan outlets, uh, they had already almost branded him as this year's champion yes. just because of that, you know. So if that, especially in the first race, you know, uh, FP1, FP2, FP3 qualifying on top of uh, of the charts By some way in qualifying as well. Yeah. 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 So, um, and then if, if uh, and even the race uh, fit fit in very well with that narrative, you know, he, he, he uh, was uh, on P1, lost a position and then he was crawling back and he, and he was bound to get that position back from Ham- Hamilton. And then pff, it, it just, it just was gone. And um, it, it especially because it's hard to understand with the way things would turn four and the rules, et cetera, et cetera oh my goodness. went. Yeah. That just fed the, 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 the frustration, the, the, um, uh, uh, not, not, not able to understand what happened here. Oh, we were robbed, you know? Yes, it's, exactly. It's like, and I, yeah. I would definitely pin the, the FIA rules there for being, for being ambiguous, maybe not communicated well, maybe shouldn't have changed over the weekend. That's been done to death in media. Obviously a lot of, I will say a lot of the Dutch fans that I was interacting with were just out and out saying, well, Hamilton, Hamilton's a cheater. Here's a video of 29 times he went off track. I would suggest that that's possibly misdirected. But I got some really good reactions from some uh, some Dutch F1 fans who just went, mate, enjoy it while it lasts because you're going to be sad for the rest of the year. <laughs> and as a sports fan, I can take that. I think that's brilliant being able to give people needle just in a respectful way. You know, if, if I'm yeah. a neutral in an event... I'll, I'll stick a quid on it just so that I've got some skin in the fight. But the Dutch uh, F1 fan base seems to have just embraced that spirit. And I think that has surprised a lot of the rest of the F1 community. Yeah, th- there's two things to this. Uh, one, um, Dutch people uh, on social media, especially Twitter, are pretty vocal. I think we are generally known as uh, or uh, seen as direct in our communication. Sure. The way we talk to people. <laughs> And if you take that to Twitter, um, it just like multiplies that. Um, and you have to understand the way uh, uh, Dutch F1 fans are bound to get fed um, with F1 information, like how it's broadcasted, right. how it's commentated on, how is it, it's analyzed. It, do you think that they get uh, that they get a feed that is very Mac centric? Do you think it's a slanted Absolutely. feed in your opinion? Absolutely. You think yeah. so? Yeah, yeah. The Dutch F1 broadcaster is a commercial uh, uh, company. It's not a. It's not a um, like a national uh, station. Yeah. 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 So uh, they are there to sell their uh, subscriptions, and they know if you just put the word Max or Verstappen in your title, <laughs> in your in your promos, in your anal- analysis, uh, you know that that's what gonna what's gonna draw the big audience. It's just a- exactly the the audience that isn't too much into f1 you know and i'm not I'm, i don't want to offend anyone but th- th- there's a whole new um uh, audience to be to be pulled in to to gain and how are you gonna how are you gonna reach out to them like by playing the the max is awesome card uh, uh, and and pay pay or uh, give us your money so you can see this or be more um, objective yeah. and more nuanced. Oh my so goodness! It, it's yeah. it's the it's the way uh, the sport is is presented to them. And oh my so, goodness! Yeah, Chris, yeah. you would you would never catch a British outlet just chasing the clicks and the algorithms, would you? Jeez, that's awful. <laughs> Absolutely not. Now, I'm I'm quite curious to to know if there was a big Dutch following of of F1 before Max arrived 
in the um, in the series just because I know you know they obviously had a a, a Grand Prix a uh, few years ago um, that's coming back thankfully uh, and I, I think there's a, a general trend of how coverage of Formula One starts in a certain country where you're focused on a particular individual or a particular team based on nationality and then as the years go on it sort of expands you know we, Formula One has been broadcast in the UK since the very beginning. And uh, even though Britain has a lot of success in, in Formula One and most of the teams are based in Britain, I think it, the fact that it's been around for so long is why we encompass the entire sport rather than one driver or one team. Yeah, that, that, that's very different over here. Um, the Dutch Grand Prix was last held in 1985. And um, I think 1992, I could be a year off was the first season that was uh, uh, completely broadcasted in, in the Netherlands. So um, they, they, you, you would have races uh, uh, on and off, but um, that was the first season it was, it was uh, completely broadcasted. And then uh, when Jos Verstappen came in, uh, there was, there was quite a big explosion of F1 popularity. But then when he went, um, that kind of faded and you had a couple of not so successful Dutch uh, uh, drivers and then with Max it just boomed and last weekend the Bahrain Grand Prix had a record audience of two and a half million viewers Wow! on a population of 17 million that's you know quite big um, so it's 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 blew up immensely since since Max came in and you have the, the the licensed broadcaster, but apart from that, you're pretty much um, uh, down to a lot of F1 websites, of course, who understand very well that if you put the name of Max into your heading headers, into your titles, into your podcast titles, that's what that's what 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 generates clicks, of course. And um, you have podcasts uh, hosted by fans, you know. Um, but it's that it it uh, it makes things very one dimensional if you um, uh, if 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 that's what you uh, uh, it's if that's your F one uh, menu your okay, diet. Good. So, so there are there are Dutch versions of spanners out there being as Max Fossey as we are Ham Fossey, and I don't mean to suggest for a second that British broadcasters aren't showing bias towards Lewis Hamilton. I'm sure there are biases that I miss because I've got my British head on and my hat on. Certainly, I would say the BBC broadcast generally cheers on the British drivers more than the other ones, but feels it's like it's natural. Uh, we are going to move uh, on a little bit, Jules, with apologies. We're running short on time because we've got a tech feature that we're going to run the, where Matt caught up with race car engineering deputy editor Stuart Mitchell. But before, just before we get there, I think we do need to squeeze in just a little bit about uh, Ferrari because... They looked so promising in qualifying. We forgot about them pretty much during the race, and they seem to go anonymous. Why? What does that mean, and where do we go? Tires. Literally, they just can't manage the tires yet. They have the one-lap pace, but they cannot sustain it over the course of an entire Grand Prix. And that, that for them, at least in Bahrain, it may be different at different venues. Is the other th- is the main thing. If they can get on top of their tire wear, they will be much closer to this sort of mythical Alpha Towery McLaren battle we've sort of been discussing all the show. The other thing is they haven't fully recovered all the power they've lost um, from the 
agreement they made with the FIA in the previous season. They're much closer, but they still have they still have some steps to make, unlike Honda. And um, as far as Renault goes, I think power wise, they are probably a little bit in the same place, but we don't know because the rest of their car was so terrible. We don't have a clue yet. And it's fair enough that they haven't recovered all of that horsepower yet. I mean, just trying to get back to where they were would have been hard enough, but then to also catch up with the step that uh, the Renault, that Mercedes, that Honda have made between 2020 and 2021 as well would have been a huge, you know, order. So the fact that they are where they are is in itself already quite impressive. Matt, and I just want yeah. to go on, Matt. Sorry. I just want to bring up is a quick general issue because it came up earlier in the thing, and I think it's a good time to put it here. No team, no matter where they are, and this includes Ferrari saying, oh, look, we could be closer to McLaren. No team wants to spend any more time than absolutely necessary working on this year's car. And I hold up for you Haas, which is bringing a single development this year, new brake ducts and a race or two. They've already had their car, their 2022 car in the wind tunnel, like six times more than any other team. Every team is desperate to get started on next year's regulations because there's such a big, big change. So any team is going to be, any team you support is going to be balancing out the cost of time spent on this year's car versus next year's car. And that's all I want to say about that. I want to say that I still think Ferrari are down on power and to quote an article from racer.com so written by chris medland he got a quote from leclerc saying we still want to make progress with the engine it's clearly the engine is still an issue they haven't solved everything yeah no i I don't think we're arguing that but in terms of what limited them in the bahrain race it was less their total power because you could see they were closer to mclaren over a single lap and more their ability to manage the whole chassis, the the tires and everything over the course of a whole race, part of which will be the energy deployment. And of course, the aero doesn't work as well when you can't go as fast, when your engine isn't as powerful. We know that connection is there. All right. We've got plenty of time until the next race, haven't we, to cover a lot of the issues we've missed today. Wanted to talk about some Williams stuff, Aston Martin as well. And I, I really wanted to get deep into Vettel's woes. So we'll dedicate a bit of time to that next weekend as well. Not from a Schadenfreude point of view. I, I promise you, I am definitely wishing Vettel well this season. Some of you out there who have been listening for a while might be able to guess why. And welcome to the new people who have joined us over the off season. It's really, really hard to tease out figures for podcasts and a lot of the time, podcasts just don't bother issuing their figures because it is such a minefield. But after a week, after a full week since that last review, Matt, I I think we have got about a 20% bump in our audience over the off-season. So I would just like to thank everyone who took the time to share the podcast. You can always just share the, the link, mistapex.net, and that will take you to the homepage. If you say to your friends, mistapex.net, They'll get there and they'll see the video and audio for the latest episode. So it's two clicks. One, they'll click the link you share. And two, they're listening or watching Missed Apex podcast. I'll share a little bit more uh, about the figures for the Bahrain Grand Prix because I think it's interesting and I'm I'm really, really proud of them. But I, I think there's a chance that I'll be sitting here next week telling you that we had an audience of 30,000 individuals that tuned in 
to watch or listen to our Bahrain Grand Prix. Um, and honestly, Matt, that is a, a number that is so hard to digest. We probably shouldn't linger on it. You don't want to think about that amount of people in front of you whilst you're eight minutes into a rant about a front left tyre. No, you don't. You don't want to think about the fact that maybe over a thousand people are watching you live. Instantly, yeah. As you, as you, as you, as you turn, you know, a chicken dinner into winter chicken or something like that. It's just not good, not good to think about that too much when you're in the midst of trying to actually record the show. Live on radio this morning, I forgot which way the sun rises and sets, got it completely wrong. And uh, people were sure to tell me about it. And sure enough, when we get things wrong, we get feedback here as well. And you're more than welcome to email us feedback at mistapex.net. Or you can even support us if you would wish to give us the power, the time and the resource to do more things within Formula One media, like the written content that you can find linked in the show notes. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash mistapex. Now, we had 8,000 people nearly join us live on Sunday, and we love doing the live stuff. But every now and then, we do want to turn our attention to some pre-recorded content. And earlier in the week, we caught up with Stuart Mitchell from Race Car Engineering Magazine, and we recorded just a little 20-minute segment. Once that's done, we're going to come back live and do comment of the week. But for now, enjoy this. This week, we are joined by Stuart Mitchell, the deputy editor of Race Car Engineering Magazine. And it's a real-life physical magazine that you can buy and put on the coffee table and even take it to your favorite room where you like to read by yourself. And we've even gotten many messages from listeners that they, they were delighted. Because last time he was on, we said, go out and buy the thing. They bought the thing, and they really loved it. Well, guess what? Guess who's back? Stuart Mitchell, and he has some very exciting news for us. Welcome back, Stuart. Guess who's back? Yes, thanks very much, Matt. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Yeah, we're we're delighted. So now you have a brand new edition of your magazine, Race Car Engineering, on the shelves. And excitingly enough for me, it's all about the future of the Formula One power unit. Yes, that's right. So this time round, we have uh, we've had an amazing bunch of discussions with some leading uh, leading technology specialists across motorsport and specifically in Formula One about what. The next generation is going to look like so formula one brought the regulations forward one year so we're looking at the next set of generation next generation coming in 2025 and there's going to be some yeah some real changes on the table at the moment for for that generation of the sport well that's that's amazing and you know me i want to get right to the nitty-gritty so what is formula one wanting to achieve with this power unit and way more importantly how are they thinking about getting there well, at the moment, the power units look like they're going to stay as hybrids. So this is sort of the most, that, as headlines go, the most uh, most important piece to remember. Um, so on the table was a series of, uh, I guess, hopes and dreams from uh, from the from the uh, governing body about what they might look like, look at in terms of technology for the next time round. So it looks like we're going to stick with hybrids, but this time we're looking at eight hundred kilowatt units. But now they're going to be split 50-50 between internal combustion engine and electrical power. So that's 400 kilowatts each per power source, whereas now we're looking at way less than that for the, uh, for the electric side because they can only deliver what is equivalent to 160 horsepower. Then they'll be able to deliver you know, a lot closer to 500 uh, with the electric side of things. So it should be pretty impressive stuff uh, as we move to that next generation. And I assume that's partly because if you look at 
high-end sports cars or hypercars. This is the kind of split we're seeing there. So this is maybe where the manufacturers want to go. But also, I mean, I've heard other people say that that we could already get a lot more out of the current electric system on the car. Yes, we could. Um, but the, there's limitations in place to control those who are, uh, you know, ac- across the grid, those who are uh, buying products and just pressing the buttons that the manufacturers tell them to press. Um, and then there's the others who design, develop, and then deploy those products themselves. So if you're a factory team, you have more knowledge, more intelligence on a product and how to get the best out of it than you would as a customer. So, you know, the current 550 kilowatt IC engines plus the 120 kilowatt provided by the battery packs uh, is, is, you know, is where you can easily sell a product quote off the shelf to, to your customers and and they can easily operate it and and get it going. So uh, moving on to the next generation, we're just taking all of that a little bit higher um, and, you know, the, the requirements for the teams will be higher in terms of their engineering expertise as well. Right. So that being the case, it's a huge change. It's a huge change in terms of the power coming from the electrics. Are they going to keep the MGUH? I mean, I know that's always been targeted as being a hugely expensive part of it. And more importantly, how are they going to actually manage this new amount of electric power? So this is where it becomes very interesting because you're absolutely right. The MGUH is is as systems go, you know, expensive and, and complex to use. Um, and to manage because you're you're taking you know that exhaust gas you're taking some of it you're using it as charging electrical power um, and then you're deploying some of that electrical power to spool up the the compressor side to then run the IC engine at a higher output it, it's it's extraordinarily complex to to get those things right so you know on the table is you know the 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 concept to to withdraw less from an MGUH or even take it off the table altogether. And to continue to be able to produce the same amount of energy and, in fact, increase the amount of energy to 800 kilowatts overall, they're looking at introducing four-wheel drive system. And this is primarily around bringing that energy from the braking on the front axle into the, uh, into the powertrain. Wait, 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 wait. Four-wheel drive? Seriously? Right. I, mean, I mean, what's next? Cruise control? Why would they need four-wheel <laughs> drive? And, I mean, because... I did look it up. I, I have this complaint about we switched to kilowatt units from brake horsepower. And I think engineers just do that once they think normal people understand what they're talking <laughs> about. But 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 I know that's around a thousand brake horsepower, which is about where they expect the cars to be now. Why do we need four wheel drive suddenly to manage it when Formula One has always, always, well, mostly always been rear wheel drive? So this is quite an interesting one on the table at the moment because Okay, so four-wheel drive means that the the axles will be uh, connected to the powertrain or the front and rear axles. So the the point that we've got going on at the moment is in order to achieve 800 kilowatts, 400 kilowatts of which will be electrical powertrain, you need a ton more recovery. You need way more recovery. And, and in order to be able to do that in a kinetic format, you need to do that through the braking system. And it's quite obvious i think for for most people who understand uh the physics that that happen in a braking zone the car lurches forward you have much more energy over the front axle which means that it's able to have uh, a lot more braking force 
it can contain a lot more braking force and slow the car down a lot more than the rear axle. And so that's kind of the, the first driver is to be to is, is the energy recovery on that front axle. And that's where they're, they're going to this four wheel drive or thinking about at least this four wheel drive solution. So the way you describe it, you're really talking uh, much more about four wheel recovery, energy recovery, than you are about four wheel drive. But given that, are you also saying that we have two wheels of recovery now, we will potentially have four wheels of recovery, but you're saying we should have more than double the energy that could be recovered because of the weight shift to the front and most of the braking being done at the front into a braking zone. Yes, that's absolutely right. So the, the, that's the primary driver for the, in, uh, the uh, introduction of four-wheel drive in this, in this case. But of course, if you can recover and the front axle is only electrical in this sense, so it only is connected to a, the uh, the drive units that are part of the electrical system, so an electric motor in this case, what is an MGU. Um, if you're only putting that on the front axle, uh, if you can if you can recover, you can also deploy. So whether or not they move into a four wheel drive formula with deployment as well is still up for grabs because that some purists certainly feel like it it would retracts a lot from the the dna of formula one so we'll see how that sort of pans out as they as the discussions broaden so you don't yet un- understand or know for sure that deployment will be allowed with the electric motors on the front axle that's still a detail to be determined did you get a sense of is that something they would like to engage in and, and if it does come to pass what kind of effect could we see on the handling of the cars? I mean, does this open the door to like every toy we've ever talked about, but not been able to play with? It, it, it could do. So, so here's the interesting scenario, if you like. What other four-wheel drive formulas that use hybrid technology have done, i.e. the LMP1s of the recent past, is that they've only allowed the front deployment of the uh, the MGU to be used over a certain speed. So this is where it becomes quite interesting. So they they were only able to use them, I think, over 125 kilometers an hour. And that means that you don't actually get that enormous benefit. So the primary benefit of electrical power being that it can deliver 100% torque from zero RPM. And that means that from slower speeds, you could your acceleration can go up at an incredible rate they're actually they're limiting where you can use it and how it can be deployed so that's also on the table for formula one in under these uh, this framework of discussions so it sounds very much like the goal would be even if this was allowed the goal would be to keep it from aiding in traction events during a turn and exiting a turn somewhat yes so but that is i mean 125 kilometers now it doesn't Perhaps I guess for for a road car would seem you know quite a quite a decent speed, but if you consider the average pace of a Formula One car around some of these circuits, there are some circuits that will you know almost never uh, go out of that frame where the car is going too slow to deploy electrical energy. In which case, you would have you know almost one hundred percent of the lap being allowed to drive in four wheel drive. At which point, you're basically completely ruining the terms around which the the you know deployment strategy has been put in place um so it it needs to be highlighted and isolated in a bit more detail i think okay and 
just out of extreme curiosity, have they discussed the option of allowing individual motors to drive individual tires, uh, wheels at individual speeds? Or do you get the sense that this will be a linked thing where, where the one motor has to drive both the wheels at the same speed with whatever diff they install to account for the usual turn events? Well, this this is where it's going to become interesting. It depends on how the diff is is sorted in the regulations. The likelihood is that they will have the diff, the front diff in this case, as a as a um, as a listed part. So they won't be able to do any developments. Uh, sorry, it'll be a it'll be a spec part. So they won't be able to do any developments on it. So everybody will have to use the same system, uh, whether it's electronic. Imagine it will be electronic. Um, there's, it's unlikely that they'll be allowed torque vectoring or things of the sort. Uh, it'll probably be quite wide open, obviously, to allow regular steering as we have now um, in terms of the, the locking ability of the diff. And then you will electronically lock it at a certain point using electronics as you're boosting away. But um, yeah, it's not going to be ultra uh, torque vectoring or anything like that at the moment. That's not on the table. Okay. So it sounds like if I understand you, the plan is to introduce this mainly for recovery to probably allow it for deployment at at a, either at a set speed or, I mean, I can't imagine why they wouldn't just decide based on the circuit characteristic this week, you're only allowed to deploy above X speed. Like say Monza is going to be a little bit different than Monaco. Um, yes. And the main goal of this is to not have an effect on the steering of the car so that it remains the driver using the throttle to drive the rear wheels to get the car around uh, the turns as fast as possible. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So so in terms of the rear wheel drive, front wheel drive split, that's still up for discussion in terms of how they figure it out. If they allow 50-50, uh, then of course, you're going to have a very different strategy than you would if they allow 60-40, 70-30, so on and so forth. So the deployment is the interesting discussion at the moment because if you're just able to recover and then you have to deploy on the rear axle then it follows very much the same concept as we've got as we have today but the contribution from electrification is higher um and that's about it whereas if you go for front axle operation in terms of deployment as well we're going to have a very very different uh, acting car in this case okay we we have delved into this and i have a follow-up question we've talked about four-wheel drive which has never been on the table before um i occasionally hear hints that maybe movable arrow will come back uh, adjustable right height what other areas are being looked at and i know those aren't technically power unit regulations i want to follow up in just a second on those but is there anything else like that being considered to help with this transition or to help bring the manufacturers and toys they play with on their hypercars but Formula One right now is not developing. Well, this is a very interesting one. Formula One is so aerodependent that if you were to change something uh, that's aerodynamically affecting, then that's where you're going to make the biggest differences in terms of the formula. Of course, we know that from 2020 to 2021, they lost 10% by cutting small triangles out of the back floor and uh, shaving off 50 millimeters off of the... Um, the bottom of the diffuser. So that's made a huge difference. You're talking 10% by very, very small margins. So active aero is something that is on the table and is actually part of the discussions across motorsport 
because it is it is we are able to implement it we have you know semi active or should we say uh, activated by driver aerodynamics or changes in aerodynamics with drs um if they were automatically activated this becomes you know a software challenge which is far more complex than i think the formula 1 and and any other motorsport wants to go into but that's on the table and if it's part of the discussions um and it's important to to consider all of these plans are in place to provide a more sustainable future for formula 1 so it isn't just about electrification and that percentage going up or or how that might turn into four wheel uh four wheel um recovery or even four wheel deployment as well it's it's about the bigger picture of formula 1 looking at sustainability so for them to use less fuel for example and fuel is another really interesting point and a really interesting part of these discussions for them to use less fuel they need to have less drag and for them to activate automatic or or using active aerodynamics is a is a very straightforward way to to implement a lower fuel consumption for these vehicles and and the fuel itself is 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 looking to to make some changes as well Right. Well, I think Lotus mass dampers have just called and they would like a word with the Formula One aerodynamics people. Yes. <laughs> Having been famously banned for being a movable aerodynamic device, we're now potentially going to have them in in the name of having using less fuel. So, in let's the name talk about of the efficiency and sustainability. Yes, yeah. Sustainability. Thank you for that word <laughs> that I managed to forget in the 3 seconds since you last said it. Um, but, and I'm going to skip over the effect all this will have on the tires, much to my utter dismay. And I really actually do want to talk about the fuels because this is another area of great fascination. So right now, uh, I believe we've moved from E5 to, was it E10 fuel? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes. But actually even further down the line and in the not too distant future, um, you know, on the, in, in part of the discussions for 2025, is what's called e fuel and it's a bit of a bizarre one because we've got e this and e that which indicates uh you know solely electric power in a lot of cases but uh but e fuel is the is what's actually on the table at the moment and what that is 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 it's it's co2 uh being used as a as a closed loop uh product um so we're taking it out of the air um and and using it to produce fuels okay So right now, just so I'm clear, if it's a small e, that means electric. If it's a big e in front of a number, that means the amount of ethanol added to the fuel. And right now they're using, I believe, non-food organic sources to manufacture that ethanol. Basically they're fermenting it. But what you're talking about is literally capturing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and creating a uh, fuel with it have have they done that have they sent samples to manufacturers because i know there was some full synthetic fuel that was sent to manufacturers was it what you're talking about now or was it or was it still the plant based stuff uh so so those fuels that were sent to the manufacturers are are a a step forward and they are biofuels so they are what you're talking about uh they're naturally grown and you know that that's the way that that's that works e fuels are something altogether different e fuel is co2 extracted from the atmosphere and then they combine it with hydrogen and oxygen made out of water to create gasoline and other methanol based fuels as well they can also make uh paraffin so diesels as well for aircraft in this case as well 
So I assume one of the advantages of that, aside from the very, very green credentials you would get from making such a fuel and making it to the point where it could be used outside of a very niche sport, if you'll pardon me, characterizing Formula One as such, is that you could really tailor the characteristics of the fuel to the demands of the car. Yes, in this case you could because it is a, a, a lab-based product. But in another sense, to be sustainable, and you know this is the big driver for this, you're capturing CO2 from the atmosphere and you're combining it with naturally occurring products to create fuel. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to close loop, create a, a, a net zero output of CO2 in the production process of this fuel. Now, when it is burnt, that's another discussion altogether, but you can control things, some of the additives, of course, if you're deciding what to add into this uh, in order to to generate you know, the kind of emissions that you want as well. And again, this is another part of the discussion for the sustainable future of Formula One, you know, energy consumption as a whole or energy output per kilogram of CO2, you know, is on discussion about about bringing that in for, for part of the regulation set. So it's very interesting. The, the only thing that we've got at the moment, which is the biggest challenge, is that producing e-fuel by capturing CO2 from the air is extremely energy intensive because you need to convert all those molecules into fuel. Um, and so, you know, the industry is looking at many different sites and ways to do that um, and to take that energy from wind and solar and so on to make it closed loop clean and co2 neutral uh in the production side of the fuel all right so i just want to be clear about this we've heard pat simmons talk about hydrogen we've talked about biofuel we have now you're talking about e-fuel did you get a sense that one of those three is the pick going forward uh, as we look at these new regulations at the moment e-fuel is on the table for the pick going forward because at this stage the amount of fuel being used over the course of a Formula One season is easily manageable. Um, so to put it into perspective, it's about 3 million litres of fuel. And that's across all the teams, including testing, um, you know, on-track testing, off-track testing. So when they have their single-cylinder modules for testing the engines, um, then, of course, any dyno runs, and then, of course, racing across the, the world. You're looking at 3 million litres. So you could produce that, and that's quite straightforward to produce. Um, and you can work out how to use, where to use the energy, you know, from solar, from wind, from whatever else, in terms of that production in, of the e-fuel to make it closed loop sustainable. Um, when you talk about the bigger picture, you know, for, for the road cars and the relevance of this technology for consumption for road vehicles, uh, it, it becomes a very different discussion because you have to map out where you're going to produce it and stuff like that. But at the moment for for Formula One, it's it's looking like a properly viable answer. However, if you talk to anybody else, you know, about the, the energy for the future, hydrogen is also on the table as well. And hydrogen for prototype racing at Le Mans is coming. And that's what they're working on in that space. And Formula One is is, is talking to those chaps as well. Um, and and hydrogen is definitely on the table as a combustible fuel in internal combustion engines as well. Okay, great. So before we get out of here, I have one more brief. Uh, I have one more lengthy question that you're going to have to give a brief answer to. 
Okay. Which which is we've seen McLaren use um uh they're making their seat out of uh what's it flax grass now and they're That's saying right. it's got uh properties similar to carbon fiber the way they do it. Are we looking at potentially using advanced composites finally in in the engine? Second question, right now we use turbulent jet ignition, but I've seen people talk about plasmas and lasers. Is that open now? Are we looking at a brand new ignition system that could be maybe be even more efficient? And finally, I just I, I don't know if you've heard of the Koenigsegg free valve, but variable valve timing and lifting, getting rid of the camshafts. Is this where is this also something that might be considered or have I now just divin- dove into the deep end uh, with my wish fantasy list here? Well, I will I'll work these in, in, in a, perhaps a different order. So talking about free valves, free valves are very interesting, fantastic technology. They're just banned in Formula One. Uh, Formula One regulations state that you must use a camshaft uh, in its traditional format um, to open and close the valve. So they cannot be controlled by any other device or in any other way uh, other than mechanical connection to the crankshaft. So that's the end of that discussion until they change the regulations. Um, in terms of the seat, um, the seat using flax fiber, the McLaren using the flax fiber. It's very interesting. Flax fibers are definitely coming up in the world uh, in terms of their replacement for things like carbon. However, at the moment, they are still about 40% heavier uh, in terms of you know, the, the layup. Um, but of course, McLaren have worked out their, you know, their compromises in that. Um, and you know, they perhaps in this case they might be using a, a different resin and something a little bit tougher in, in that way to incorporate flax as the fiber instead of carbon. Um, but I think in in the short term future, um, recyclable carbon fiber will become much more uh, a part of the solution rather than you know flax and things like that until they work out the best way to do it. Um, and when you talk about ignition systems. You know, this is a, a, a very deep topic um, in, in Formula One at the moment. They use some of the cars will operate and the engines will operate in what's called HCCI, which is homogenous charge combustion ignition, where in certain states they will actually combust spontaneously the, the combustion fluids inside the chamber. And that's controlled by temperatures and pressures rather than the ignition system itself. Uh, so in some cases, they don't use a spark plug at all. They will have it spontaneously, the, the fluids spontaneously combust at a certain speed, at a certain rate when they're under full load, for example. Um, and other times they actually use pre-chamber ignition. And what that is, is a tiny, small combustion chamber above the major combustion chamber that contains the gas. And then it expands at a certain rate uh, into the main chamber. And that's what gives them that really high energy density from a very small amount of fuel. So uh, yeah, there's combustion science is, is definitely one for, for, for sitting down for hours to discuss. Well, we'll have to do that soon. Stuart Mitchell, it has been an utter delight to have you back on the show. Thank you for taking the time to entertain my highly, highly uneducated questions and teach me a little bit more. And if you need even more detail, and I'm going to admit I do, please go find a copy of Race Car Engineering on the newsstands now and buy it for yourself will not regret it at all. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Matt. Really appreciate it. Wow. Uh, a great pre-recorded segment there from um, Matt Trumpets. And being able to put those midweek recordings out live to you on a Sunday gives us so many options because we can now approach people midweek and say, hey, instead of giving up like an hour on a Sunday night, 
and uh, and face uh, familial and spousal pressure, come chat to us midweek and we can put it out on um, on a Sunday. So I, I really hope you enjoyed that. The takeaway away from that is go and find a copy of Race Car Engineering magazine at your local newsagents. I have been converted. I have not picked up a physical magazine for a while, but Race Car Engineering magazine has converted me, as has Race Weekend uh, from our friend Magnus as well. And we're going to hear more about Race Weekend magazine, which is republishing the episode from its from its Kickstarter. So you can buy that edition very, very soon uh, as well. During the course of the season, uh, I hope that you will enjoy the variety of content that we're going to bring you, as well as the panel shows. We do, despite being accused of a hamfosi of being a hamfosi podcast, uh, we do have panel from Denmark, panel from the Netherlands, France, America, Brazil, Australia. So we are uh, an international, we are a global, we are a one-world podcast. Even if the annoying host sometimes comes across as a little bit Lewis Hamilton bias. However, there are also shows from Joe Sayward, who's been to every Grand Prix since 1998 and gives us an absolute wealth of knowledge. And even though I personally don't agree with all of Joe's opinions, we have a wonderful chat and it takes me a little bit out of my echo chamber. We occasionally catch up with the likes of Matthew Carter, who used to be uh, the boss of Lotus F1, he jumps in every couple of months to give us that real inside look into life within the F1 circus. And we've got uh, Summers F1, who is, I would say, probably the leading tech journalist at the moment. And he is the tech journalist for motorsport.com and does specialist tech shows with Matt. And we've got the likes of Chris Medlin from racer.com, who, who jumps in and sees us occasionally, and even Alex Brundle who is now the F1 TV commentator, has been on this show several times. So hopefully you'll find something to keep you entertained here at Missed Apex Podcast. But our bread and butter is 8pm, the night of the race, wherever it's possible, we bring you that race review, that instant reaction, and we will have a race for you ready for your Monday morning commute, Matt. That's what we do. That's what we've based our whole advertising thing on. Yes, and I know the reedy, reedy bits aren't necessarily your thing, but I will point out, for the record, I suspect that a lot of our writers secretly might like Ferrari. (laughs) Oh, no, yes. There is a big Ferrari contingent. When I was meeting all the writers over Zoom and I I said that Ferrari were the Death Star, I was greeted with very... I don't think they saw the funny side of it, let's put it that way. So the written side certainly isn't uh, a a Hamfosi fest. However, every single show does end with an award. Comment of the week. During the races, we do a Good Thing Award, a Missed Apex Award, a Pony Award. But for our live chat room, for the comments that flood in during the live recording, we have a comment of the week. Who's your candidates, Matt? All right. I'm just going to rock through these very quickly. We start with Mr. Bongers at the top of the show discussing the corners where Red Bull were faster. And the corners where Mercedes might have an advantage. In other words, Mercedes is good at going slow because they seem to be doing well well in the slower corners. Oh, yes. So slow for P1. Hashtag 44. Ah, there I go again. Who's the next nominee? Uh, Evangelos Heteroclitus uh, discussing the remarkable discussion of tires from Chris Stevens and not me. In other uh, Chris had a mild case of that. Wow. He was infected with a dose of trumpets. Uh, we have Mark Greenhowen with four-wheel drive. I'm quitting the sport if they go four-wheel drive. 
Although I said that when they stopped using cloth helmets, so you should probably ignore me. There was a little objection in our live chat going basically, why do we have to change things in Formula One? Why can't everything just be the same forever? I can understand that. I can sympathize. I'm getting kind of old now. Anything, any change alarms me and terrifies me. But I'm excited to see what they can do with handling with four wheel drive. I just, I want to see, I want to see the free valve technology. I want to see the movable arrow. I want to see what they can really do with an efficiency-based formula when they're set loose with tools like that, because it's going to be amazing. I mean, we're already, at, uh, I'm on a rant, we're already at 50% thermal efficiency. They're aiming at 60 plus percent for the next set of regulations. And I bet they get there and beyond. I just anyway, give you 25 minutes of a regular show for tech and you're going to, interfere with comment of the week come on man that interview could have been three hours and, and it will be we will count have, yourself lucky we will have Stuart back regularly throughout the season uh yelmer vanderlei that'll should have an advantage as a 4xw dc four times world drivers championship because four wheel drive yeah 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 yeah, not yeah feel, no, i'm not oh, feeling oh, it oh. who's the winner Matt? spanners has made a face um and finally, we have Max Stone, Mike Stoner in with this discussion gives me lots of fuel for thought. Oh, puns. That is, that, puns are terrible. Who wins? That being the case, I think Mark Greenhow has to win. Four-wheel drive. I'm quitting this party. They go four-wheel drive. Although I, I said that when they stopped using cloth helmets. So you should probably ignore me. Comment of the week. Thank you very much for joining us in the live chat. And thank you to everyone who shares our content if you like it maybe your friends will like it it doesn't matter if you have one follower or a million followers just share mistapex.net and people will be directed in two clicks to our content one click clicking your link the second click they will have content that they possess so please share mistapex.net consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash missed apex the more we are supported the more we can do the more we're supported the more we can spend time midweek finding interesting people to speak to you in the shed and deliver that as pre-recorded content on a sunday as well if you want to follow matt i guess uh, you can follow him at matt pt 55 on twitter you can also email matt matt at missed and if you want some romance novels, go and check out Matt's wife on Twitter at A Weaver Writes. You, of course, can follow me. I would never be so immodest as to... Yes, I would. At Spanners Ready on Twitter. Or you can email me, spanners at mistapex.net. Thank you very much for joining us. Always enjoy a casual non-race show, especially after the adrenaline of the Bahrain Grand Prix. I have a feeling that Imola is going to deliver just as much drama, but we've got a little while to wait yet. Wherever we see you next, though, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex. Oh, you were giving me that look, Matt, that kind of you've forgotten something look that always makes me panic. No. Oh. No. Good. Nothing. That's it. We did all the things. We did. Well, all right then. Have have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday off. That's on me. Ah, sounds good. And I, now I just have to give it to all my other jobs. Oh man, I'm not looking forward to everything opening up and having to compete with real trumpet playing for your time. Yes, well, I don't want to do that. 
I should I should I should I invite the audience to go view my little concert that's up on Facebook Live? We can put a link in the show notes. I'll stick drama. it under my usual things, but yeah, I did a concert yesterday and it was recorded on a phone. And if you would like to see what I get up to when I have an actual trumpet in my hands, you're welcome to go visit. Or we can just follow Matt on Facebook and it is just pictures of trumpets. That's all he posts. Anyway. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.